We'll be reading from Acts chapter 6 this morning. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmaeus, and Nicolaus, a a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after they prayed and laid their hands on them. Excuse me. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of the men that was called the synagogue of the freemen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to, to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and after the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face shine as the face of an angel. You may be seated. Good morning. Looking around just to, it's, it's, I find it good and, and helpful sometimes just to, to pause and reflect uh, and think about those who are here and how all of us are today and each day in need of his word. I pray this morning the word would do a work in our hearts and our minds and that we would practice once again the principle in the scripture of not only being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. That we would not deceive ourselves by simply hearing alone. Acts chapter 6 is where we're at. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses here this morning, Lord willing. There's a context here in Acts chapter 6. It begins right here in verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Perhaps some of your translations, it reads, there arose a murmuring. You know, as I was looking at some of the chapters leading up to this, I saw them back in chapter 4, for example. At the beginning of chapter 4, how, remember they were teaching and preaching. And 
the Sadducees and folks came upon them and they were disturbed at the people taught and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the the result of that is they laid hands on them, verse 3, and put them in custody until the next day. We see right on the heels of that in verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed. The number of men came to be about 5,000. If we fast forward a few verses in chapter 4, we read in verse 32, the multitude of those who believed, again, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. And then right on the heels of this summary, we see a contrasting examples in Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, two people who are put forward as examples. One, a very good example of giving. Another, a very poor example of giving. And we see on the heels of that, this great fear. But we also see that believers in Acts chapter 5, 14 were increasingly added to the Lord. I bring those up to put forward that examples already in the book of Acts have shown us that whether the growth of the church comes as a precursor to persecution or on the back end of persecution, suffering, the church is going to walk through trials of various kinds. I want you to take note of how the church responds to the trials that come. Here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, context provides a lens through which to read the first seven verses, which, by the way, this is going to be our final study in the book of Acts for the summer. We will, Lord willing, pick it up at Acts 6, verse 8, come June of next year. It's been a joy to study the book of Acts. And I hope and pray that this has been a joy for you as well and for your families as we've been able to work through and see how this early church functioned together, how they operated. Well, if we look at the context in Acts 6, verse 1. In those days... When the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Now the complaint, according to the text, was against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. The complaint specifically involved Hellenist widows who were being neglected in daily food distribution. So, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, let's be clear, we're given a context here to consider. In those days, I hope you ask the question... In what days? In what days? Well, from what we can gather based upon what we've studied up to this point, in the days when teaching and speaking Christ resurrected from the dead was dangerous business. In a day when following Jesus, when being a disciple of Jesus meant that you found yourself immediately in opposition to the governing body of the day. In a day when persecution was real, as opposed to what we tend to talk about today on many occasions, the what-if scenarios. Because the true matter of fact is, there aren't very many, if any of us, sitting here today that have really been persecuted. And so we talk about the what-if scenarios. The days we're talking about in Acts 6, they're going through it. They're living it. In those days, the days of real suffering, persecution. It's it's a day when the power of God had been evidenced as a result of men and women willing to speak and act as though Christ was their great treasure, that pearl of great price. They were willing to do whatever. They were willing to go wherever. And they they were... willing to minister whenever. In those days. Those are the days we're speaking of. But the text goes on and says, when the number of disciples was multiplying. Isn't it interesting that in the context of in those days, 
we read that this was a time when the number of disciples was multiplying. Disciples are multiplying in the furnace of affliction and persecution. Seems like an odd environment to multiply disciples, doesn't it? Is it odd only through the lens with which we have for so long seen it? I mean, it's not a very popular marketing strategy today to market church growth, disciple making, if you will, in light of, well, by the way, you're going to get persecuted for this. There aren't too many people who are going to sign up for being a disciple knowing good and well what it meant. And yet the text paints a picture that disciples were being multiplied in this context. Now, the contextual information provided for us in Acts 6, verse 1, tells me something about this new community of believers. First of all, it tells me they were consumed with pleasing the Lord. Secondly, it tells me that they cared very little about what man thought of them or how man responded to their pursuing of the Lord and His purposes. It tells me that they recognized the inherent dangers of holding to such a position. Up to this point, they've already been in prison. We saw last week, not only they've been in prison, but they went through a beating. And yet they continue to obey God rather than men. It tells me that they devoted themselves to the very things that we already read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to Christ and to his church. And they realized that being a disciple was not simply hanging with the church crowd. I believe that's instructive for us today. Those of you who are occupying a chair, being a disciple does not mean solely that you need to just be here and occupy one of the seats. There's, there's more to it than that. There's a heart that goes into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, they recognize these things. They recognize that, that being a disciple was not just simply hanging out with the church crowd, but it was walking in obedience to his word. And then the text says there arose a complaint. What's written here should not come as a surprise. You see, at a time when disciples were multiplying... In those days where being a disciple could land you in prison, complete with a beating, there arose a complaint. So, the text is going to unfold. This is a little bit of the outline, for those of you who do take notes. The text is going to unfold the nature or the content of the complaint. And then proceed to show how the apostles, the, the God-ordained leadership group of this new community how they were going to steward such a complaint. And the conclusion of the text provides insight into what God does as a result of prudent actions taken by his disciples in a faithful, loving manner, how they handled the situation regarding this complaint in Christ's church. We're going to see God's outcomes are put on display at the conclusion of this particular text. So you have the nature of the complaint what is the content of the complaint? That's verse 1, right? You have the stewardship of the complaint. How is the complaint handled? Verses 2 through 6. And then you see, finally, the resolution from the complaint. What are the Lord's outcomes? What are God's outcomes from this particular account? Verse 7. All right, so let's look at it. The nature of the complaint, verse 1. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, let's be clear on some details. Who is issuing the complaint? The Hellenists, okay? The, the Greek-speaking Greek Jews in particular. Who is, who is the complaint levied against? The Hebraic Jews. What's the subject matter of the complaint? It has to do with widows. What's the specific nature of the complaint regarding widows? 
The, the Hellenist widows were being neglected. They were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What are the implications of such a complaint? What can we assume based upon the nature of the complaint? We can assume that the Hellenist needs, the widow's needs, were not being met. We could also assume, perhaps, that the Hebraic Jews, the widows, their needs were being met just fine. We don't see a banner being raised to meet further the needs of the Hebrew widows. Question, who had been administering the needs of the widows up to this point? The text would lead us to believe that the apostles had been coordinating the needs up until now. And that's about to change. I'd like for us just to take a step back, just for a moment, and consider a complaint in the church. It's an interesting word. Gangusmas. It even sounds funny. Has two different ideas attached to it, really. One, that of a secret debate going on. Similar to John chapter 7, verse 12. And in John chapter 7, verse 12, we see that it was the time of the feast... And we see that what was going on there, the people were asking about. There was a wonder, where is Jesus at? And verse 12 says, there was much complaining among the people concerning him. That's Jesus. There was this secret debating going on behind the scenes. What is Jesus up to? wonder what he's doing. wonder where he's at. But we also see another side of this particular complaining. This secret displeasure. And that's really what we see here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We see it displayed also a couple other times. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining, right? Without murmuring. And we see it also in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality without what? Complaining. Without grumbling, murmuring. The text says that there arose a complaint. There took place a complaint. Elsewhere we see instances where this phrase, there arose, right? Six, Luke 6, 48, there arose a flood. Speaking of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the wind and the, the rain beat against it. There arose a flood. A little bit later in Luke 15, 14, there arose a famine in the land. Speaking of the prodigal son. John three twenty five. there arose a dispute between John's disciples and the Jews, and then in Acts eleven nineteen, there arose a persecution from Stephen, which we'll be getting to here. Comes up next in the text. Acts six verse one says there arose a complaint, a murmuring. Within the life of the church, complaints arise; they take place from time to time, don't they? Complaints. The text here is not advocating that you find a church free from complaints. I don't know that there are churches where that, that's, that can be said that that's true. Where there are no complaints. And yet I believe the text would have us consider our words, our attitudes and actions in light of what it means to be a part of the family of God. The text is advocating wisdom needed to navigate complaints when they arrive. And I believe this is instructive both for leadership, the elders, and the church as a whole. Keep in mind that the complaint comes in light of disciples multiplying. More people are being added by the Lord. Large numbers of people. In this case, large numbers of widows. Perhaps. Needing attention. And throughout the Bible and the Old Testament, we see instances where God's people are called to take care for the poor, provide for the widows. Even in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a great length there. Paul goes to, 
to lay out the qualifications for who is a widow. How do we take care of these widows? The church was to be doing this. But you know, as you consider complaining and you consider murmuring, it oftentimes manifests itself in a behind-the-scenes kind of way. In other words, murmuring is very rarely brought first to the attention of those in leadership. It usually takes the form of words spoken to others about a certain situation. You may be directly involved in the situation. You may be indirectly involved in the situation. Murmuring is oftentimes catered to the ears of those listening to produce an intended effect. What is the result of a murmuring, complaining spirit in the life of the church? What's the result of that? It's a mark against the oneness called for by the word. Murmuring, perhaps, walks under, falls under that umbrella of discord sown among brethren. Something that, according to the Bible, the Lord hates, Proverbs chapter 6. You have a plan, you have an idea, you have an alternative way that's better, and instead of taking it, to, in this case, leadership, you begin the process of implementing something different, something better in your mind. And you circle the troops and you gather a hearing and feel the need to let everyone in on what you're thinking. There's a side note to this. It's not always the wisest thing to feel the need to let everyone know everything on your mind. Amen? It's not. Be careful what gets shared with others and ask of the Lord how this is advancing the unity of the body, the unity of the spirit. If the words you are about to speak are going to be murmuring in nature, if those words are complaining words, refrain from speaking them, please. For the purity... And the oneness of Christ's church. Let's stop with the complaining and the murmuring. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, what do you do if someone, you know, if you hear someone murmuring and complaining? You're not the one doing it, but you hear it. I believe the Bible's instructive on this. Speaking the truth in love. Call them to stop murmuring and to take the concerns to the one who perhaps needs to hear. It may be prudent to direct them to pray about it first. Point them to what the Word says and have them consider what Christ would have them say, if anything. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, without going into all the details of Hebraic Jews, Hellenistic Jews, I believe it's helpful to point out that the church at this particular time had both, had Hebraic Jews, had Hellenistic Jews, in general, kind of a general uh, descriptor, if you will, okay? The Hebraic Jews were disciples of Jesus from the Palestine area, speaking Aramaic and perhaps some Greek as well. The Hellenistic Jews appeared out of the Jewish uh, diaspora, okay? And they consisted of Jews who predominantly spoke Greek. Perhaps some of them did know and spoke Aramaic as well. But two different groups, one body. And as I was likening this to my own context, and, and perhaps you liken this to your context, where you're at and what you're doing, I saw this as sort of a, Comparable to having, in referee terminology, a homer. And I don't know if you know what a homer is. But a homer is is, is typically referred to as a guy who's out there and he's refereeing the game. And and he's called a homer because all he does is call the calls against the visiting team. 
everything that, that could be 50-50, go either way on a call, it's given to the home team. Well, whether intentional or not, it seems as though the Hebrew widows were getting what they needed. Hellenistic widows were not getting what was needed. There arose a complaint. And I tend to believe that the complaint just happened without introductions, if you will. I believe the apostles saw it when it happened as opposed to someone or some group of someones bringing the complaint to the apostles for discussion. In the midst of recognizing the complaint of one widow group toward another, what does the leadership do? How do the apostles respond to hearing such a thing? Do they take seriously the complaint? Do they recognize that it's an issue? If so, how are they going to handle such a situation? How are they going to handle this murmuring, this complaint? Look at the text. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. All right, so here begins this Stewardship of the complaint. How does it get handled? Let's be careful right here to note what the apostles did, how they led, and who is involved in the problem solving. How does the complaint, which seems to be a legitimate issue having come to their attention, how does it get handled? Complaining and murmuring, while associated oftentimes, most often... With negativity, it can actually bring to the surface real problem areas. Let's be clear on this. I believe one of the instructive elements here in the text is for leadership to see that even a complaint may have some level of truth in it. When complaining comes your way as a leader, think about it. Whether you are an elder in this church or whether you manage and operate a business and you have people working for you, when complaints come your way, how do you handle it? Let's maybe boil it down even a little closer to home. Dad, in the home, How do you handle a complaint? How do you handle murmuring that may take place in your home? Do you tend to just push it aside? Do you tend to sweep it under the rug? Do you tend to wish it away? How do we handle these things when they arrive? You see, when complaining comes your way as a leader... You're not at liberty simply to dismiss it, dismiss or push it aside or to just hope. Oh, I just hope it goes away. And by the way, we need to understand this too. This does not, what we're talking about, this does not give one in the body license to move forward and complain. Because there are some, some times when there, there is truth in, in the complaint or the murmuring doesn't mean that it's okay. Press forward, press on and you're complaining. Let's not put those two together. (laughs) I read this text and I I see the apostolic group taking seriously the content of the complaint. And they take action on the complaint before it spreads its divisive tentacles any further. It says, then the twelve summon the multitude of the disciples. The twelve are about to appoint seven to oversee the work of this ongoing ministry. The the twelve summon the multitude of the disciples. In other words, they brought the church in on the issue at hand and involved them in this particular situation. The church of Jesus Christ is not a church where one man 
or three elders do all the work of the ministry. If, if that's what you've signed up for, if that's why you're here, I, I, I'm going to be very clear. You're, you're probably going to be disappointed because that's not Hope in Christ Church. Nor do I believe that's what the word calls for. One man doing it all. I have no desire, church, to do it all. And I'm going to speak on behalf of Kevin and Ralph. I don't believe they have desire to do it all either. More importantly, the Lord would not desire for us to do it all. The Lord's desire is for the household of God to operate together, to work together for the edification of the body. So what we're reading about right here in the text speaks to the kind of leadership Christ called for, a servant-oriented leadership, as opposed to a lording-it-over mentality characterized by the Gentiles. And so they bring the multitude of disciples together for a word. Look at the end of verse 2. It is not desirable. It's not right. It's not pleasing. Some of your translations might say. Pleasing to whom? Pleasing to the Lord. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The complaint came to the attention of the apostles. And we assume up to this point, the apostles had been overseeing this ministry. Side note. When you're leading something, whether it's in the church or outside the church, when you're leading something and someone complains against you, our tendency is to immediately put up a wall of defense. Because we don't like people complaining, saying what we deemed at the time, thinking negative. We don't like those kinds of comments. And we immediately take offense. Perhaps what needs to happen first is not getting your, your sword ready to battle. Perhaps what needs to happen first is to allow what's being spoken to seep into your mind, to filter what's the truth here. Is there truth in this? If there's truth in this, what is it I need to know? Because I guarantee you as a leader, if you're not open and willing to listen to what other people say, you aren't going to be leading for very long. You do not have the monopoly on all the answers. That's why you are a part of the body of Christ. We need each other. So now with the number of disciples on the increase, this particular widow's ministry was not receiving the attention it needed. But here in the verse, the apostles make a declaration. This is good. This is so important. They make a declaration of the Lord's priorities, calling forth what the Lord had set them apart to do. You see, there's a distinction here. There's a line being drawn between the, the word of God and serving tables. One is not necessarily being elevated above the other here in the text. Both are serving the body of Christ. In fact, that word serve is mentioned verse 2 and also in verse 4. Serve, serve tables, also in, in light of what the, the apostles were going to give their attention to, prayer and to the ministry or service of the word. The issue here is not one of value. It's not one that says what we're doing in terms of administering the word and, and spending time in prayer, that's so much more important than serving these tables over here. No, that's not what they're saying. They're not lowering the ministry that needs to be done. The apostles are not declaring themselves to be above such a ministry either. Serving tables is not seen as menial or below them. But upon, it's based upon this. This is important that we understand this. It's based upon what the Lord has called them to in his church. Based upon what the Lord has called them to in his church, the task of overseeing the ministry of tables is out of order. 
You know, I was thinking about this and how, you know, some of you here today, you're in the midst of doing things. You're contemplating moving forward in some things. Without understanding, recognizing, or listening to what the Lord desires for your life. Some of you are currently taking on tasks that would be deemed out of order. Not necessarily because they're wrong, because they're evil, because they're harmful. But rather they're out of order because the Lord has not called you to this work. They're out of order because the word would say this is something you ought not be doing. This is something perhaps that you have chosen, something that you want so badly to take place that you've not taken any time to ask of the Lord what he would desire for your life. I mean, think about it. Think about what happens when the church operates regularly out of order. Think about what happens when someone carries out a task out of duty. And not delight. Think about how painful it is to truly serve in that situation. Some of you have been there. Think about how painful it can be even for the other parts of the body, for that matter, to see someone operating out of order, out of duty, just to get the job done. Is that what God has called us to be about in his church? And examples abound on this. But most of us in here have probably walked into a fast food restaurant. And you notice the young man, the young lady taking an order. Or you're in the drive-thru and you hear their voice. Do you ever notice signs of working solely out of duty in those places? You ever picked up on that? You go to the window, you get your food... They hand you your food, and you drive away, and thank you. Thank you for coming to Burger King. Have a great day. There's nothing, nothing. They don't talk. They don't say those words. They don't smile. They don't do anything. I was at Taco Bell one time. By the way, I I, I enjoy that, that kind of food. I enjoy that. This is not a knock against Taco Bell. It just happened to be this was the situation. They had somebody at the front counter, this was a long time ago, when they were introducing the wonderful five-layer burrito. Do you remember that? Five-layer burrito. They still have them today. Probably because I bought several of them, kept them in business. But I remember there was this wonderful picture up on the counter. Picture of the five-layer burrito. And it was new. And I was curious. It looked very good. And so I asked the lady behind the counter, What's in this? What, what's, what's all in this five-layer burrito? And her response was, I don't know. I ain't never tried it. That was her response. To which I said, okay. <laughs> it really didn't make me want to buy a five-layer burrito that day. Church, you see... The examples abound when we do things simply out of duty, just to show up, right? Another, another example is I see driving down the road, you've seen this too, where there's a construction site. And you see one or two guys working. And you see four or five guys standing around talking to each other. I wonder what's going on here. Why are we here? What are we doing what we're doing? I see it on the basketball floor. I see referees not giving an effort. They don't even get to half court line. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that what it takes to separate yourself just in the realm of what I do in basketball court is effort. You stand out if you give an effort. People wonder, wow, what's what's, what's gotten into him? All it is is giving an effort. All it is is doing something not out of duty but out of delight. You see, because I have a priority in being there, and it's not just to officiate a game. It's to serve my Lord in what I'm doing. 
And when I do that, my heart is engaged in the process. My mind is engaged in the process. And I desire to do it well for his glory. And when that happens, your ministry will be a delight. Church, the day of members operating out of order must stop. Christ's church needs and demands engaged parts, connected parts, gifted parts, all coming together to benefit the body of Christ. The days of ministering solely out of duty is damaging and divisive to the body of Christ. Think about how wonderful it is to have each part working, not out of order, but working and functioning within the body as Christ has called you and gifted you to function. You see, when living stones, that's what Peter refers to us as, when living stones are working together for the purpose of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, God is glorified. God is glorified and the church is edified. Please stop entertaining tasks that would call you to function out of order, out of duty. And start asking of the Lord how he would have you serve. Your ministry then, I, I guarantee you, it's going to be a delight. And it will not only be a delight to you and to the Lord, it's going to be a delight to the body. When your heart is set on obedience to Wherever the Lord would have you serve. Whatever the Lord would have you do. So, because it is not right unto the Lord for the apostolic group to serve tables, here's how they propose to handle the current situation. Therefore, brethren, seek or look out with the intent to find. That's the idea. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Okay, so the brethren here are tasked with looking out for these seven men. They are to be on the lookout for such men as described. The word here, seek, is imperative. They are the ones commanded to carry out this important work. What are they seeking out? The text says they're seeking out seven men. Gender specific here. Who just might step on a toe. They're seeking out seven men. Now, in our knowledge, in our way of thinking, I can't think of a better opportunity than to have a woman take hold of a ministry opportunity. A ministry to widows. Wouldn't it be great? Well, that seems to be a great, you know, I think that, that would be a great thing. No, that's not what I see in the text. Let's be careful. Not to just assume our cultural standards for today override or trump what God's word's already spoken. This does not mean that women were not involved in this ministry. Let's be clear on this. It's not saying that women were insignificant in the body. Don't entertain those thoughts. But seven men are called upon to oversee this ministry. Male leadership in God's church is not culturally correct these days. I understand that. I hear that. You probably have heard it too. You've seen it. But I also see what this word says. And as the apostle said earlier in Acts, I'm going to obey God rather than men. What is to characterize these seven men? If the multitude of disciples is to seek out and be on the lookout for these seven men, what is it that they ought to recognize in their lives? Let's look at this. This is very important. First of all, there are to be men of good reputation. Men who, even outside the circle of the brethren, have a good reputation. Do they have a good name inside and outside the church? 
Well, they're to be men full of the Holy Spirit. And this, this right here, this, this one little part right here, we could preach this one the rest of the day. The men desired to oversee the widow's daily food distribution were to be spiritually healthy men full of the Holy Spirit. Is it not true that any ministry within the body of Christ ought to be led by men full of the Holy Spirit? Would we desire to have a ministry led by men not filled full with the Holy Spirit? I sure hope we wouldn't settle for less. You see, any of those leading ought to be full of the Holy Spirit. Notice the requirement is not less. In other words, the apostolic group wasn't interested in throwing a warm body to oversee the situation. That wasn't the goal. To appoint a man who simply was breathing and put him into the role would have been a disservice to the Lord and his work among the widows. You see, if the apostles had viewed the food distribution task as menial or unimportant, they could have just handpicked a body to fill a gap. Could have. But you see, the church doesn't need more bodies to fill gaps out of duty. The church needs men filled with the Holy Spirit to step in and serve Christ with the gifts and abilities he's given them. That's what's needed. Notice, too, that in seeking this kind of man out, the implication, though this is good, the implication is that such men will be recognizable. If they are to seek them out, and being full of the Holy Spirit is one of the requirements for the task, then it seems that being filled with the Holy Spirit is able to be detected. You can see it. You can recognize it. Men and women, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, does anyone know it? Are people able to recognize that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory? Can they see it? There also would be men full of wisdom. Seeking out men full of wisdom would be crucial to the ministry. Taking the information that is available to them and being able to discern how to lead, how to minister, how to distribute the food in such a way that's going to allow the Hellenistic widows a proper allotment of food. Being able to minister to these women with wisdom, judging the situation rightly, not with partiality. You see, these seven men were to be full of godly wisdom and not the wisdom that is from below. Wisdom that is pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, as opposed to wisdom that produces envy and self-seeking. James chapter 3. Men of good reputation, men full of the Holy Spirit, men full of wisdom. Seek out these kind of men, church. These are the men, then, whom we will appoint over this business. You seek them out, and we will appoint them to the work. And the question comes, why are the apostles delegating this work to others? Were they just tired of the job? Were they just ready to hand it over to somebody? I've heard before in the church, and it pains me when I've heard this, Someone who, and it's typically someone who's older, says, I've put my time in. I've served my time. As though now they don't have to do anything. Or as though now they can just do what they want to do. As though now this needs to be handed off to someone else. As though this item, this ministry was such a burden to them. The Lord would not have us call or look at these things in this manner. Look at verse 4. I believe it provides the reason for delegation of this business over to someone else. They go on and they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, the apostles understood the calling of the Lord in their lives. And just as there are people in the church needed to minister food to the growing widow population... So too is there a need for the church to be fed from the word of God. See, attaching the word of God and prayer is like 
Breathing in and breathing out. In many ways, really, they go together, right? They're natural. They're supposed to go together. Ministering the word without prayer is ministering the word essentially according to self. You see, if this is the king's message, it's not my own message, then I need his grace to be able to deliver it. I need his strength to be able to speak the words that need to be spoken. I need his spirit of power working in me to give me the words of Jesus, to point me to his words, the words of truth, words that align themselves with scripture. You see, ministry of the word needs prayer. And prayer needs the word. They go together. The elders are to be ministers of the word and prayer as well. They're to be apt to teach, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says. They've been given, they've been granted leadership over a particular flock to shepherd, guard, feed, and lead. And the decisions of elders are to come out of prayer and an understanding of what this word says. They must hold not to the basic principles of the world or the great philosophies of the day, or the popular trends of the day, but hold fast to the pattern of sound doctrine. Hold fast to that which is according to Christ, Colossians chapter 2. So the apostles put forth a way to handle the complaint. How did this go over with the multitude? Look at verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. The whole multitude was pleased with what the apostles put forth. There is a response from the whole multitude. The church had been operating in one heart with one mind, right, up to this point. A spirit of oneness was the manner in which they had been operating. It doesn't surprise me to read, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. Oneness was a big deal to them. And it ought to be a big deal to us as well. The fact that the whole multitude was pleased also reminds me of the multitude making up the parts of the body. They were engaged in the ministry. They gave a response. They acted. They were not passive. They participated. They spoke up when called upon. All of them. The whole multitude bought into this and they were pleased with what was spoken from the apostolic group. Well, the rest of verse 5 lists the names of the men chosen. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, most of these names, with the exception of Philip, would be maybe the one exception here, but these names are Greek names. It's interesting that, that the men chosen came primarily from the Hellenistic group. What does this mean? Well, one writer had, had, had an idea that, that, the, that those with the sense of being wronged were the ones primarily entrusted with putting matters right. Perhaps there's some truth to that. They were the ones delegated the responsibility to oversee the ministry to the widows. Not just meeting the needs of the Hellenistic widows, but seeing that both the Hebrew and Hellenistic widows were receiving their daily allotment. In stewarding the complaint... Notice what verse 6 says. Whom they, the multitude of disciples, they then set these seven men before the apostles. So the multitude sought out and selected seven men characterized by the three criteria in verse 3. And once these men were chosen, they were set before the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid hands on them not to delegate any special powers per se to them, but as a means of setting them apart for ministry to the widows within the church. So the nature and complaint, the content of the complaint, is that the Hellenistic widows were not receiving their daily allotment. The complaint came from the Hellenistic Jews within the church, and it was projected against the Hebraic Jews. What had the potential of destroying the unity of the Spirit is taken care of and addressed by the apostles. They don't sit on the issue. They don't table the issue for another time. They don't sweep it under the rug, hoping it'll be gone. They deal with it. They took action on it. They stewarded the complaint well. And they included the multitude of the church along the way. So what's the result of handling the complaint in this manner? What is God's result of work done pleasing to him? 
What is God's outcome when his church operates according to his will? Look at verse 7. Then the word of God spread or kept on spreading because it was already spreading. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here we have a resolution coming out of how they stewarded and handled the complaint. And when I speak of a resolution from the complaint, I'm speaking of resolution God brought about as a result of his church operating according to his will. I'm speaking of God's outcomes. What verse 7 gives us are God's outcomes. The apostles could have just tried harder. They could have heard the complaint and just upped the distribution a bit to appease the Hellenistic Jews, widows. But they don't do it that way. With the disciples multiplying, the needs became greater, and the solution was not just trying harder. Think about the ramifications of simply trying harder. Sometimes trying harder gets equated with doing more stuff. Trying harder might mean you spend additional time trying to meet the needs of certain people, but all the while, it's important to ask the Lord whether this is something He's called you to take on. Are you going to try harder and operate out of order? Are you going to try harder and get the job done out of duty instead of a right heart? You know, I was looking at Exodus 18. It was a joy to read that text again. And it's in many ways instructive for those in leadership. Moses has been having a conversation with his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro is visiting with him and hearing about all the Lord's doing in his life. And then Jethro shows up, verse 13. Moses is sitting to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and the other. I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I, would give you, I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and work. They must do. So he's saying, keep doing what you're doing. Keep teaching them the word. Keep teaching them the laws. But select from all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. For they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. You see, the, the impact of such a thing was not only going to be helping Moses, but it was going to be beneficial for all the people. I'd say Moses had a great father-in-law who spoke wisdom into his life. You see, even Moses was called to select men with certain criteria, able-bodied men, men as fear God, men of truth, men who hate covetousness. The instruction for the elders is to take heed to yourself and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28 says. The elders have been given charge to lead and govern the affairs within the local church. They're not called to abdicate what the Holy Spirit has given to them. But they are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4 says. 
There arose a complaint. I want you to notice that the complaint was not doctrinal in nature. The, the apostles were not preaching a deluded gospel, nor were they holding beliefs in opposition to the word of God. The complaint here centers on one group of the church not receiving the daily food they needed as widows. The church had established, we need to remember this, the church had established already a pattern for giving, for meeting needs in the body. The complaint is not a lack of funds. The complaint is a lack of appropriating the funds to both Hellenistic and Hebrew widows. I want you to see something in the text here as we close. Verse 7 shows what happened on the other side of stewarding the complaint. All we have in the text is the nature of the complaint and the stewardship of the complaint. How did they handle the complaint? The text details the plan of attack. And then you read, Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So you leave the text with a certain assumption. The complaint issued in verse 1, which is stewarded and acted upon in verses 2 through 6, the result of such work is the word of God spreading or continuing to spread and the number of disciples multiplying. Leads me to believe that God was pleased with how this complaint was handled. Leads me to believe that the actions taken by the church were pleasing in God's sight. Leads me to believe that the Hellenistic widows were now receiving their daily allotment of food and that the Hebrew widows were also receiving their daily allotment of food. You see, I believe in many ways this is a plan birthed in prayer, set in action by the multitude of the disciples and carried out for the Lord's purposes. This ministry is no small thing. It was not treated as a small thing. The trial that came before the church in those days, this was no small problem. And when you consider the church and the possible trials that may come her way, you might, be inclined, you might be inclined to think that feeding widows is low on the priority scale. I don't believe that's what the word says, though. I don't see the apostles handling the complaint in such a manner. I see a group of men open to what the Lord would have them do. I see a group of men desirous for the Lord's work to move forward, not to get bogged down. I see the leaders leading, leaders leading. That's a novel idea. Calling for men full of the Holy Spirit to get involved in the work. The trials that come our way here at Hope in Christ may not include, at least in the immediate, may not include coming up with a game plan for meeting the needs of widows. But trials will come. They have already come. They will continue to come in the days ahead. And may the Lord grant us wisdom to know how to handle the trials. And may he grant his flock discernment to work what needs to be done. The outcomes that are put forward here are spiritual outcomes. Notice verse 7 doesn't say, and the Hellenist Jews were content now. It doesn't say, and the Hellenist widows were well fed now. No, it gives us three outcomes. That the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly, continued to multiply greatly. And a great many of the priests, there were some 18,000 priests doing some study on it including the Levites. And, and there were priests who now were becoming obedient to the faith. How so? Because evidently, they were able to see how this church was taking care and meeting this particular need. Something, they saw something. There was something there in how the situation was handled. Even those priests turned to the faith. God's outcomes. And as we continue, church, as we continue as a body, working through membership here at Hope in Christ, may the church 
be able to see a similar outpouring of the word and additional disciples being made, men and women who are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And may we together seek God's outcomes and not our own. As we look unto Jesus, who, as the scripture says, serves as the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that it is to be able to read and study your word. The joy that it is to be able to teach your word. I thank you, Lord, that you've given to me a role and responsibility in this body. And I pray, Father, that each part of this body would come to understand what role you've given to them to play. That in being connected with other parts in the body, that each part here would come to understand they have something to give, and the something they have to give has been given to them by you, God. That you are the giver of all good gifts. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to steward well the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've given to us. That we would work heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. That whatever we do, we would do it with a heart that's engaged, a mind that's engaged. We would not be doing these things out of order, nor would we be carrying these things out out of duty. Lord, I pray that as a body here at Open Christ, we would be able to function and work together, carrying out the very things that the Lord has called us to, that there would be great order, that there would not simply just be duty, but there would be delight in what we do, that we would see the ministries of each part of the body not as some, in some elevation scale of one being, oh, this is better than the other. But Lord, I pray we would see the wonder and the beauty of all the parts together functioning and operating, connected together just as you've called them to be. Father, I pray that that's what we'd be able to see in the days ahead here. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our rock, our Savior, I'm grateful, Lord, he's also our strong tower in whom we can run. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.